As I uh, mentioned the other day, I think one of the purposes of these uh, Dharma talks is to set in a wider context the kind of practices that we're doing. Um, and again, to, to shed some light really on the point or the purpose or um, yeah, really what's at the heart of what we're doing. Um, you may find, I don't know whether you've already had this experience or whether you will have it when you, you leave here, sometimes of trying to explain to people why you may want to, to go on retreat and why you may want to be on retreat. And it may sound uh, rather strange. In fact, to some people it sounds you know, a very odd thing to do altogether. You know, all the things that are really nice to do in life, like singing and dancing and talking to friends and watching the TV and looking at things on the internet and all, all the things that make life worth living, <laughs> uh, you can't do. So, you know, what are you doing? What do you do all day? Well, we did some sitting meditation and walking and sitting, and I really noticed the way my mind went everywhere. And, and, and they may understandably think, well, you know, what's the point? Why would you do that? And uh, so we may all have our own answers, I think, really of the ultimate uh, reason we're here. And there could be very personal reasons on uh, many levels. Um, but this uh, aspiration to live with more wisdom and more compassion is very much at the heart of this, really. And we may express that in different ways. Um, and really, all of the things we're doing are, are in the service of that. So it's in the service of a way of life uh, that is more uh, wise, compassionate, kind, and uh, so I came across this quotation, um, which I think neatly expresses how what we're doing here um, is, is in the service of, of that goal. So this is from uh, Mingyur Rinpoche. He says, but the best part of all is that no matter how long you meditate or what technique you use, Every technique of Buddhist meditation ultimately generates compassion, whether we're aware of it or not. Whenever you look at your mind, you can't help but recognize your similarity to those around you. When you see your own desire to be happy, you can't avoid seeing the same desire in others. And when you look clearly at your own fear, anger or aversion, you can't help but see that everyone around you feels the same fear, anger, and aversion. When you look at your own mind, all the imaginary differences between yourself and others automatically dissolve, and the ancient prayer of the four immeasurables becomes as natural and persistent as your own heartbeat. May all sentient beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all sentient beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May all sentient beings have joy and the causes of joy. May all sentient beings remain in great equanimity, free from attachment and aversion. So you may have had those moments when you're noticing aversion or fear, anger, judgment in your own mind. And it's quite easy to conclude from that, well, somehow I'm not doing it quite right. Or, you know, this isn't, this isn't going as I'd hoped it to be. 
So that's a very interesting shift of perspective by seeing these own patterns in our own mind, by being able to watch them as they arise, as they pass, we're actually dissolving that sense or the illusory sense of being so separate. You know? I think sometimes if you see somebody else who seems a bit more snappy than you are at that particular time, so somebody kind of snaps at somebody, sometimes we can have the feeling, oh, I would never do that. <laughs> but it's like when you, when you sit in practice, in retreat, you can actually see all of this stuff. So you can see our own propensity for all of these states of mind, our own capacity to feel these things. And so the tendency to make somebody or something else kind of other, oh, that's definitely not me. We often talk about how the sense of self arises, but the sense of other arises at the same time as the sense of self. Yeah, if I'm defined like this, then there's what is not me, what is separate, what is somehow completely different. Yeah. So we can trust that in doing this practice, we really, whether we're doing it explicitly or implicitly, we are cultivating compassion, cultivating this sense of connection. So I wanted to reflect more on the, uh, the nature of compassion and this aspect of the path, bring it out a little more um, clearly for us. And we have this uh, figure of, um, of Kuan Yin, and Kuan Yin in the, in the Buddhist tradition is said to be the one who hears the cries of the world, an embodiment of compassion, the one who hears the cries of the world. And so that's pointing to a deep sense of receptivity, of listening, of being connected, which is really in the nature of compassion to be open to the sufferings and struggles in the world and to be steady in the midst of this. It's really the nature of, of compassion. And sometimes I think about this in terms of uh, how we might imagine a kind of an ideal listener. If we had particular problems, difficulties, frustrations and we went to talk to somebody about it, you know, on the one hand, it's, it, it's actually very painful if we feel we're just not heard, that somehow our own suffering has not been connected with, not met, not seen. Uh, and yet, equally, at the same time, what can be helpful in this, when somebody's listening to us, is a sense, yes, they're open to this, what's hard to bear, but there's a steadiness within it. I think sometimes this, the presence of another person can really hold that for us very, very strongly. Um, and I, I certainly know sometimes some kind of counsellors, some therapists feel that, that just that quality of presence is in itself deeply healing. Mm. I certainly know in my own life there have been times when um, that just being met by another person, being heard by another person, can really hold, uh, you know, very, very difficult experiences. And sometimes in meditation we're, we're cultivating the capacity to do that, to have this spacious awareness that there may be the difficulty, there may be the sorrow, may feel very dense, but it's held <coughs> in a wider space. And sometimes in our lives, other people, the, the compassionate presence of another person 
is very helpful and, and nurturing in that too. So compassion too then includes a sense of, uh, of equanimity. It sees, connects with, meets the suffering. But somehow also knows that's never the whole story. So in those moments of, of our deepest despair, there's sorrow, sadness, suffering, but it, it can feel like that's, that's the whole truth or the, the, the ultimate and final truth about our lives, the world, the future. Compassion, yes, can meet the difficulty, but holds it within this wider perspective of all of these opposites that visit us, the joys and the sorrows and the losses and the gains, the different seasons of life. One sort of model I find helpful in thinking about uh, practice generally, but perhaps compassion in particular. Um, I'm not quite sure how to express it, so I'm kind of reaching for words a little bit, but it's something of a three-dimensional model. Let's see if I can explain this a little bit more. Sometimes I think habitually we might experience life a bit sort of two-dimensionally, so we're quite interested in whether there's pleasure or pain, or whether there's an ordinary sense of joy or an ordinary sense of sorrow. So life is kind of up and down like this. And then we're thinking, oh, has it been a good day? Yeah, it was a good day. My, I don't know, my football team won, or it was a, it was a bad day. My car broke down, or it was, a, uh, it was a good day. You know, a friend bought me a present, or it was a bad day. I broke that mug that was very important to a member of my family, or whatever. So you can see all the ups and downs of life in that way. But I wonder sometimes is if practice is actually pointing to a kind of third dimension, so it's sort of coming out this way, which is less about whether what we're connecting with is an up or a down, but more about the depth of our connection. And we can begin to get a taste for and really feel nourished by connecting with whatever is here, even if it's really difficult. That there's a... It's very tough to find words. I guess we could say a freedom, uh, uh, a liberation, and sometimes things just feel real. I'm connected with something real. And the sense of being an isolated, separate, divided self can dissipate. And so sometimes even in the midst of great sorrow, there can be this sense of connection. And sometimes we can feel this in, in, um, in times of bereavement. And we know that in bereavements people go through very, very many different stages. So this is not in, in any way intended to be a demand. Uh, you know, it can be stages of denial and anger and all kinds of uh, different stages. But there may also be a feeling of really touching into a sorrow which reveals our connection with life. And this, I think, is something of the nature of compassion. And so when I think about my own life and the times that are most difficult, I often reflect that in a way it isn't actually the really tough things. 
What is a bit more difficult in many ways is the routine feeling, the trivial feeling, you know, just being lost in things that really don't matter very much at all and just kind of caught and bound down with that. But to, you know, to talk deeply to a friend who's in a, in a difficult place, well, there's a connection, there's something, there's something, yeah, you can only use that word again, real, you know, he feels, yeah, this is something free in that. And something unfree about being lost in, in the trivial. So you see what I mean about this, this other dimension that we can tune into in our practice. So we can, t- and this again we can use in, in, our, in our meditations. We can always think, can I turn towards more and more what's happening here? Yeah, this may be a difficult experience, but what's it like to really meet that? Many of us have that, that experience in practice where we think, yeah, okay, I'm meeting with it, I'm being with it. But we're not quite yet. <laughs> and it's only that when we, we really keep turning, turning, oh, oh, okay, now I'm really open to this. It's kind of quite subtle to explore. But we know that moment of real opening is, is when there's a connection. The connection with what, what we're feeling. I wonder too, in thinking about compassion, that it's also helpful to think about the experiences we can have of facing injustice and the anger uh, and aversion that can arise in, in the face of injustice and to think through that and to see how we can find responses that are, are compassionate. I'm very interested in the way that our practice might be informed kind of consciously or unconsciously by certain ideals and I think it's really useful to bring those ideals to light. Um, There's a a Zen teacher called uh, Barry Majid and he's written a book called Ending the Pursuit of Happiness which is rather interesting. (laughs) There are loads of books about the pursuit of happiness, how to find happiness. There's a guy ending the pursuit of happiness. But one of the things he says in there that I find really fascinating is he says a word like enlightenment, uh, what did he describe, it like, can be like flypaper for all our fantasies and deepest kind of hopes and desires. So what he calls our hidden practice, what are we really trying to get out of the practice? <laughs> you know, are we really trying to find, what I really want is a life where there's absolutely smooth, no difficulties, no problems whatsoever, nothing that disturbs me. And so, consciously or unconsciously, that might be informing some goal. Um, and so, if that's there, let's say there's, there's some kind of semi-conscious idea that if I'm really good at this practice, I'm just not going to be affected by anything. I'm going to be just like there, you know, smooth, gliding through life, like kind of floating. <laughs> then when we notice times of feeling anger, frustration, we're stirred up by some injustice. It's then very easy to see that as a problem. Okay, this is a sign of the immaturity of my practice. This is a personal problem. Why do I have to get so bothered about stuff? But another way of looking at that, and I think a very interesting way of looking at that, that can really feed compassion, is more the language of transforming that 
energy, seeing what's behind that energy. So, again, if, if we, we could think about the sufferings of the world on so many different levels, whether they be in our own life, in our families, with our friends, in our organizations, in society, globally. And, and we're affected by that. And we're sensitive to that. And sometimes it can trigger these feelings of, of you know, there can be a lot, really being stirred up by it. And so just noticing what is, is the ideal, that we're just going, oh, it's fine. You know. um, this is a critique, that we, a very, of, very famous critique, of course, of religious traditions in general from, from Marx, was that it's the opium of the people. <laughs> Somehow, rather than looking at the world, looking at the conditions of injustice, we just have this kind of opium of, of religious belief. And this critique is interesting. It comes up again. You can see people... Um, uh, bring it up uh, to do with you know contemporary spirituality, or sometimes you hear it critiques of mindfulness courses in that way. And while ultimately I, I think we can we can respond to that critique, I think it's nice to know, uh, nice to be aware of that as a danger. Yeah, I don't think it's actually a kind of ultimate truth, but is that a danger? Can we sometimes use that? Is there an ideal that our practice is going to make us less bothered? You know, there's sort of problems in my Organization, but I'm I'm doing my meditation and mindfulness. I'm I'm protected, <laughs> and we can see the whole thing like a big shield. Yeah, and we're walking down the street, and there's a sort of a homeless person being our shield of mindfulness is there. Yeah, invulnerable, possibly, but also imprisoned. Yeah, <laughs> you know, imprisoned in a sense of separate separation. So. Again, I wonder if this, this feeling of compassion then, is, uh, this attitude of compassion, it can free us. There's so many middle ways in this practice. You know, middle way is the endless versions of it. But a, another middle way between, on the one hand, when anger, uh, injustice arises, thinking, oh, you know, do more practice, more breath, and it'll go away. <laughs> you know. Or on the other hand, just expressing that out in a particularly raw form that may be mixed with uh, speech or actions that are more harmful. We can look at that more as an energy. The word energy is quite, quite neutral, isn't it? More as an energy. So what's in here that's really about a compassionate response to injustice that we can use? Not only we can use, but we really need to use. And then there's a power in that. And so this is the sifting through. And, and like all of these middle ways, I, I don't know about you, but I find in my life, oh, okay, now I've wandered into trying to dampen all this down <laughs> and be a bit kind of, you know, it's okay. <laughs> and then sometimes I might go the other way. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going to speak out. No, maybe I've gone a bit over the top or <laughs> drifted into harshness. So again, I, I you know... I've given up trying to be perfect, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> you know, perfection is it's very tiring, isn't it, <laughs> trying to get it perfect. But, but we, we just keep coming back. Okay, so all right, where is it now? And as best we can, you know, finding that place. So these people, uh, you know, like uh, Martin Luther King and Gandhi and uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, have become 
in our culture really like icons. I mean, I, I find it now very hard to think of these people almost as human beings. And I, I mean, I think if, you know, as we do, we could see the complexity of their lives. Uh, I think it's also quite helpful, really, yeah. You see, you know, not just have these kind of icons somehow up there, these amazing people, and then we could just sort of worship them from afar. But I think one of the reasons they've become these icons is because they're such powerful role models of the strength of compassion. You can see, you know, Martin Luther King and his I have a dream speech as one. There's nothing soft about that. This is not... I mean, I was talking to somebody about it the other day. You know, you think about Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks didn't say, well, actually, the back of the bus is much the same as the front of the bus. Let's not make a fuss. You know, I mindfully sit at the back of the bus, thoughts coming up and down. Oh, it's a bit unfair, a bit unjust. But actually, the back of the bus is fine. No, she said, I'm going to sit at the front of the bus. And that, to have that capacity to find that, that place where the, the wise speech is strong and compassionate and those, what may begin as more kind of raw, angry feelings of injustice are not just dampened down, but transformed into something deeply healing. So again, taking care, I think, to, to look at the ideals that may be informing consciously or unconsciously our practice. Uh, and those, how they work on our imagination, how they are around in our imagination. One of the things that John Peacock, uh, who teaches here, often says, which I, again, I find very, very helpful, he says, the opposite of attachment is not detachment, but engagement. So again, this is very helpful for me in terms of, of the ideals that might inform my practice. We can think our oh, Buddhism is all about being unattached, being detached. And again, it's easy to interpret that as meaning aloof, separate, indifferent, you know, beyond the world. But to be engaged, as Martin Bachelor says, creatively engaged when we're no longer just reacting or uh, responding out of habit, there's a space, and the space is of a wise, compassionate engagement to turn back towards all of those places where there's suffering in our own lives, again, in our families and, and in the world around us. One of the great texts uh, texts in uh, the Buddhist tradition uh, on compassion is Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And there's a very inspiring sense of what it means to, to live with compassion. So I'd like to, to read some of that. Um, and then also reflect on, again, reflecting on how ideals can be, how we can hold our ideals wisely. 
So Shanti Deva says, for all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. And in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings poor and destitute, may I become a treasure ever plentiful and lie before them closely in their reach, a varied source of all that they might need. My body thus and all my goods besides and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away withholding nothing to bring, to bring about the benefit of beings. Like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures, for boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. Thus, for everything that lives as far as the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bonds of suffering. It's nice just to have a, a chance to absorb those words there. Deep and profound sense of aspiration uh, embodied there. And as I was, again, reading and reflecting this today, I was also pleased to hold this together with the next lines that Joseph Goldstein writes. This is in, in one of his books. He says it's possible to read these stanzas and become inspired, but also perhaps a bit daunted. <laughs> and again, for me, we said earlier how, how the practice is about middle ways, and you may also know it's also about many, many paradoxes. Being able to hold together seemingly contradictory ideas and somehow hold them together in our mind. And so to me, there's something about that vast and, well, cosmic vision, really, of Shantideva, of what compassion might be, that really opens my heart. It's like there's something about this practice that is beyond just me kind of somehow getting through the day with a little bit more ease or yeah, snapping at the people around me less. There's some much broader and vaster vision at the heart of this practice. And yet too, at the same time, can I bring that right into the everyday, right into the human, right into the, can't say the vulnerability and the frailty and the ordinariness. You know. As some people have also said, you know, again, if we were to hold that in in the wrong way, if we hold something like that in the wrong way, it could be a kind of conceit. Who am I? You know, little me. Somehow going to be here for all beings. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> so, again, there's something about, what about the compassion for ourselves when the people in, you know, we're around the people in our lives and actually we just feel really irritated. We've, we've had enough. 
Can that somehow be held too with compassion? Not as something contradicting that, but somehow we can hold those two things together in our mind. Um, my dad uh, has a book, a wonderful book I often think of, called The Selfish Pig's Guide to Caring, which is great. Any of you who care for, um, uh, you know, in a caring role in many ways, you, you might like to look at that. But one of the, the great things about this book is that it normalizes um, the, the feelings of kind of irritation or aversion or... Uh, you know, kind of even even disgust that might arise for a carer. If we're in a caring role, say perhaps caring for an elderly relative or um, perhaps somebody who's uh, disabled, we might be full of all these ideas of compassion. I'm really just full of, of, you know, endless giving service. And yet to know too that compassion can include those very human times when we've, we've, we've kind of had enough. You know, and when those thoughts and feelings arise too, we, this is not then a place of rejection. I failed. If only I could be like Shanti Deva. <laughs> and here I'm this person who's just tired because, you know, for the 13th person this day, this person's asked me to get something. I don't know if that makes sense, but somehow to hold, hold those together. For me, this is... Uh, uh, again, a real, in, in the Zen tradition, they talk about these koans. It's almost like a koan for me in practice. How to bring together the ordinary and the extraordinary. How to look at the Buddha, serene, with wisdom and compassion. To allow that to inspire the imagination, the aspiration, the inspiration of something really profound. And not, and not to feel that this needs to be limited by my, my current level of understanding. There may be so much more here to discover. The deepening of practice may be, in a very beautiful way, quite endless, boundless. You know, not to sort of put limits on it. And yet, at the same time, not to allow that to become fantasies of perfection, or ideals that become a tyranny. This is interesting. Notice when our ideals become tyrannical. You know, it's like then there's just this huge, big Buddhist or spiritual stick to beat ourselves with. You know, still not good enough. <laughs> you know, certain of these ideals, it's like yeah, yeah. There's something about holding it wisely, holding that together wisely. So I shall uh, pause there this evening. Um, and as uh, um, Caroline did last night, we can have a time if there are any questions or, or reflections. Um, Perhaps we'll just sit together just for, um, just for a minute or so and just see as we're sitting if there's any response, any comments, reflections, questions that arise. And then in a minute we'll begin to explore those.
Thank you. So if anybody has anything they wanted to, to ask or to say, then please feel free. Uh, yes, perhaps the person at the back and then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I've never known how to respond to that. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah, some words I sometimes use is I'm, I'm just a person. I don't, I don't know if that kind of helps, but you can almost. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good. Thank you. Thank you. No, it's it's interesting. Um, I guess as I was talking about ideals, as you said, and, and how we might hold the ideals, and then there may be all kinds of um, ideas that other people have about us as practitioners and the ideals that they have, and then how they're um, yeah they're kind of imposed on us in that way too. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I don't know. Perhaps you could say again, we're just including, you know, our practice can include all of those things too. Yeah. It's, it's funny, you're sitting at the back of the room and I, I can barely see your face. <laughs> yeah. Does that make some sense? I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I know you're not kind of looking for an answer really in that way, but yeah, it's a... Oh, you were sort of. Okay. <laughs> Well, my answer is to say, I'm just a person. I'm just doing my best. You know, I'm still working progress, something like that. Yeah. That would be one way to answer. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Good. And then you wanted to say something like that? Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I guess there are different ways we could, we could respond to that. I think sometimes to do something even if we don't feel like it can be very helpful. Uh, sometimes the, the action might come before the feeling. Uh, I mean, this can imply in all kinds of ways. I mean, it's, it's another way. For instance, when we're feeling low, we might not feel like doing anything. So we think, oh, I can't, I can't do anything until I feel better. But actually, sometimes it's quite good to do something, go for a walk, speak to a friend, whatever. And then the feeling can come after it. So actually, it could almost be a, one of the ways to train ourselves to feel more kind is just to do it. If that makes sense. So... Um, in a, in a way, then, ra- rather than waiting for that. Yeah. Does that...? Yeah, well, that, uh, I feel like I've tried that yeah. and somehow gone too far in that. Yeah, think, yeah. And it's kicked me in the face. Yeah. So, yeah. maybe I'm going the other way now, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, again, it, it's perhaps quite subtle and we could, we could get into particular examples or situations, but I guess there can at times be a kind of overcompensation of a giving or, or, or sort of trying to be nice or kind to people that somehow uh, can disconnect us from what we're feeling. And I guess that could, that could become a difficult place too. Yeah. Yeah. And somehow I think... For me, it's helpful to see kindness uh, and compassion almost as attitudes we can bring to our experience rather than particular experiences themselves. So in that way, whatever we're feeling, we can have the sense, can I bring kindness to this too? So I'm actually really feeling quite raw and sensitive and in a difficult place, okay? So can I bring compassion and kindness to that so it can be something that's around it and holding it? So it's not, it's not as if the kindness or the compassion is, deni- is a denial and something inauthentic. I say, well, we're going to knock this, I don't want this, this state of being. Let's knock that out and put kindness there instead. But more can I, you know, can, can I hold that as best I can with some kindness? Yeah. Yeah, I suspect it might be a longer conversation we could have too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good. Yeah, good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Any other reflections or? Mm. Good. 
Thank you, yeah. I think it's the, the dialogue between, say, contemplative traditions and activism, I think, is very interesting and fruitful. And my sense is that, that there can be a lot to be learned on both ways. As you say, you know, if a more meditative tradition could drift into a kind of quietism and withdrawal, it may also be that sometimes activism becomes, uh, you know, so lost in a kind of righteous indignation that then leaves people feeling very burnt out and kind of constantly, you know, sort of railing against the world in a way that just makes the person, in a way, can feel very frustrated and, and can sort of heightened feelings of, of powerlessness so th so those i think actually bringing the two together i mean in your life but in more generally i think is is deeply creative uh, and actually much needed <laughs> yeah so i really yeah encourage that yeah It's perhaps time for a final question or comment. Well, uh, I mean, I also teach eight-week mindfulness courses. So I'm, I'm familiar um, with those, um, with with that uh, course. And uh, certainly, one of the things that can be part of the course is um, to teach that acceptance is also balanced with a wise response. And so, seeing those times that acceptance doesn't imply a passivity. And this, I think, can be very much part of mindfulness teaching, so that we may be uh, with our breath, with our thoughts, with our feelings, and there's an acceptance in terms of what is arising in this moment. Can I let that in? Can I welcome that? Can I be with that? Um, but that to see that that acceptance then opens up a space in which we can make a wise choice about any given situation. So uh, mindfulness, therefore, doesn't mean to... Let's say, you know, if we're, if we're being bullied at work, the acceptance part is to notice. Okay, so there's the breath, there's the emotion, and I'm feeling the, how, how that's around, the reverberations of that, the thoughts around that. But then it doesn't kind of stop there. The mindfulness then might be, okay, well, what do I need to do on a practical level to address this? Yeah. So I think that's the response um, to... Yeah, just to sort of emphasize that that's very much part of the training and part of an understanding of what mindfulness is. 
that a kind of passive resignation is a, I guess what we might call a near enemy. You know, it looks it looks like it. Right? Yeah. I mean, this the, the, I mentioned Martine's phrase, which I really love, is creatively engage. So our practice is bringing us to a place where we can creatively engage. And that great choice, you know, that what's the, I don't know if you use the, the serenity prayer, again, which is in the, in the you know, to the, uh, the serenity to accept what cannot be changed and the courage to change what can be changed and the wisdom to know the difference. And for me, again, that's one of the things, well, where are we in life? And sometimes we can... Notice we've drifted off into one extreme rather than another. We're trying to change something that really needs to be accepted. There's certain things that we're just, you know, uh, unable to change. But we might equally go the other way. That there's a, there's a sort of a false acceptance of something that could be creatively challenged. Does that, does that make sense? So to me, that's the art, again. That's why it's the wisdom to know the difference, because it's not necessarily easy. <laughs> um, Yeah, I've, I've heard it called, in fact, I, oh, it's my, my dad again, second quotation from my dad today. My dad calls it the heroic and the stoical. And he says, actually, we need both. The stoical in the sense of kind of, you know, it's sort of accepting this is, all sorts of things are beyond our control. And can we kind of make peace with that? And the heroic, which is, no, we can make change and we can, you know, we can create and shape and influence what's around us. And I think both of those can be part of a, of a mindfulness training. Is that okay? Yeah. yeah. Good. Okay, so let's just can sit quietly just for a minute or so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.